favorite verses in the whole Bible. Of course, I have a lot of favorite verses, but this is one of my favorite verses. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.5. 1 Thessalonians 1.5. This morning we saw how the Lord gave himself to the, to the disciples as a model for them, as a pattern for them to imitate. And that he established quite a, an impressive living in front of them. Tonight, what we'd like to see is the reproduction of that model in a man like you and me. Okay? So maybe after this morning, we may feel, wow, this is too high. This is too hard. This is impossible. Well, tonight we're going to see how this can be reproduced in a multitude of people, this kind of pattern. So let's, uh, let's read 1 Thessalonians 1.5 together. Let's enjoy it, and then uh, let's, uh, we'll begin our fellowship, okay? Ready? For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, even as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. For our gospel. Amen. Our children's lesson. Our gospel. Our YP meeting. Amen. Our gospel. Amen. Did not come. Amen. Did not come to you in word only. Amen. 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 Not only in words, but also in power. Amen. Amen. In words, in power, and in the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And in much assurance. Amen. Even as you know, you know. You know what kind of men we were. Amen. What kind of men? What kind of men we were among you? For your sake. The 
book of 1 Thessalonians is a book for beginners. It's a book for new Christians, for young people, for those who are new in the Lord, new in the faith. The book of 1 Thessalonians was written in a very affectionate way, full of emotion, full of feeling, full of intimacy. And when Paul was writing to them, they were about one year old in the Lord, a new church having been raised up under only about three weeks of gospel preaching, and out comes a church. It's amazing. Imagine going to a place, laboring there with your co-workers for about three weeks, three, three Sabbaths, maybe a little bit more. Actually, I think from what we could find out, there was probably four brothers, Paul and Silas, Luke and Timothy, that went into this place and they began to preach the gospel. And after only a short period of time, many were saved, and a church life began. And uh, Paul had to flee from that place because of the persecution. They were threatening his life, and the brothers felt, you've got to go. So it's like he was being torn away from his newborn babes. They were his infants in Christ just brand new, like a mother being taken from her children or her children taken from her mother. So no doubt Paul is full of feeling concerning these believers and whether or not they could survive uh, without care. And uh, as time progressed, he knew the opposition to these young believers would become very intense. And he had sent Timothy to find out how they were doing. And Timothy had just returned with a good report that the church was still there. The saints were uh, going on and they had very fond, uh, affectionate feelings for Paul, a good remembrance of Paul. And this incited Paul to write this epistle to them to encourage them and to feed his newborn babes. You think, well, what is this? You know, there's a parents' conference related to children's work, and how does it apply? Well, I think by the time we finish, you'll have a a good impression. When Paul wrote this epistle, read it. challenge you to read it. I don't know how many times I've read 1 Thessalonians, but I've read it a lot. And it's very difficult to find any teaching, any doctrine, in the book. But what you do have is memories, fond remembrances. Do you remember how we were? What, how we were among you? For you know how I was to each one of you. These are the kinds of utterances that are found in this book, not teaching about the kingdom of God, even though the kingdom is mentioned. But no explanation. He says that he wants every one of his children to become worthy of the kingdom of God. Oh, that's a tremendous goal. We want all of our kids to be overcomers, to be kingdom in the kingdom. But he doesn't say how or anything about it. 
He talks about the church of God, which is of the Thessalonians. That's in God the Father. My, he even implies a kind of incorporation in the triune God. But he doesn't explain it. He doesn't teach it. It's like he mentions it. He talks about the Lord's coming in every chapter. But he's not teaching them what he's doing to them, what he's doing with them, and what his burden is, is himself. Not in a natural, fallen way. It's just, I was part of the gospel message that we gave to you. It was embodied in me. I was living together with my co-workers, a kind of life in front of you. And that's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember how we were. And then he says this, chapter 1, verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. It wasn't just a gospel message. It wasn't just a, a powerful uh, evangelistic uh, campaign or crusade. Our gospel didn't come just in word only, but in power. There was impact. When we said something, oh, it hit. It hit, hit them hard. Turned them around. Not only in power, but also in the Holy Spirit. Our messages brought you into the Spirit. And into much assurance. Which means you knew this was the truth. You knew this was right. There was an echo in your being. Where did all that come from? Where did the power come from? When did the, the assurance come from? He said, even as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Well, you see, it came from the kind of men. It makes me recall a, a portion in Matthew chapter 8 when the Lord was on the, uh, in the boat with the disciples and they were on a stormy sea and the Lord was asleep in the boat. You remember that story? He said, let's go to the other side. If the Lord says we're going to the other side, don't you think that they're going to get to the other side well, on the way, the storm comes, the wind, and the Lord is asleep. He's asleep in the boat. You know what? I think that is amazing, that the Lord could sleep in a boat on a stormy sea. I think that's really a special gift. I, I have a real hard time sleeping in airplanes, and those are not always stormy, you know, rocky. I can assure you that when the, when the plane is really bouncing around. I don't think anybody's sleeping. So anyway, the Lord's asleep on the boat and they wake him up and they said, don't you know that we're perishing? It's like, don't you care? And then the Lord rebuked the wind and rebuked the waves. And the disciples said to one another, what kind of man is this? This is not an ordinary kind. So Paul uses that same expression, what kind of men we were. This morning and tonight, I just had the feeling that we should fellowship about what it is to be God-mankind. God-mankind is a particular kind of humanity where the triune God can live again in humanity. He could live out. You know, with the Lord Jesus... His humanity offered the Spirit no resistance. There was no cultural hang-ups. 
there was no dispositional frustrations. You know, all the things that bother us, sometimes it's our disposition, it's our culture, it's our habit, it's our upbringing, it's the way we've always done things. Yet, the Lord was able to live the Father constantly. That's the kind he was. That's the kind of man he was. And that's the kind of man Paul became. He became this God-mankind. And because of that, he could tell these Thessalonians, that's why our gospel came to you like that. It came because of a kind. You know, and maybe I'm dreaming. And, but I can envision God-mankind people all over Europe, all over, all over Europe, in every one of the countries, these very interesting people. They're kind of mystical. They're not like everybody else. They don't talk like other people. They don't have anxieties like other people. They have the Lord living in them. And it becomes visible. It becomes noticeable what kind they are. And it becomes attractive, very appealing. Tonight in our fellowship, we want to fellowship about Paul and his three companions. And fellowship about this word to the Thessalonians, particularly in chapter 2, when what he is doing is he's talking about his pattern, himself as a pattern. You think, you know, to talk about yourself is not something so good to do. I don't feel so comfortable. But Paul was feeding his young believers with himself, his living of Christ. His pattern was food. He fed them with this pattern. Okay, the title tonight is called Presenting Ourselves, that's you and me, Presenting Ourselves as Patterns for Fostering the Young People and the New Believers. In the context of tonight, we'd like to also include the children, patterns. And these patterns foster. This term fostering is not used in the book, but the word, the term fostering was a, was a term that Brother Lee used to describe how Paul cared for these young ones. This word fostering is a tender word. It implies the raising up, the bringing up, the nourishing, the cherishing, the tender care. Like you're dealing with a little plant, a tender flower, or a little child. More than anything, what they need is fostering. They don't need a lot of teaching. They don't need a lot of teaching. They need fostering. And Paul fostered his young believers by being a pattern. The pattern fosters them. One says, for the new believers to live a holy life for the church life, there is the need of the aspect of fostering. Paul likens the apostles both to a nursing mother and to an exhorting father. They regarded the believers as children under their fostering care, just as parents care for their children, fostering their growth, so the apostles cared for the new believers. 
our children in the children's work and the children's meeting, our young people, they need fostering. They need fostering. First Thessalonians is a word to beginners. This is point B. To new believers, those who are working with young people or with new believers can receive from this book both a direction and an outline to follow. Okay, so here you have Paul. The Apostle Paul began as Saul of Tarsus. We know this. The chief opposer. In First, in first Timothy, he calls himself the foremost of sinners. Breathing out threatening and murder against the church. Someone full of rage, full of hatred, breathing out murder, going to Damascus with papers to arrest Jesus' callers. How did this foremost of sinners become such a pattern, such a model? Now he's breathing out what? Love, the gospel. I thought, you know, if there's hope for the foremost of sinners, there might be hope for me, you know. If Paul's the foremost, that's the worst. At least you're not the foremost. That spot has already been taken. (laughs) So there's hope for us. How did Paul become such a reproduction of Christ. He was really just, again, a reproduction of Christ. When we come to chapter 2, is when we we come to Roman 2, we come to chapter 2 of the book. Paul fostered the young believers mainly by presenting them a pattern of life, a pattern of a proper living. This pattern was actually Paul himself. I I just don't know whether I can adequately convey all the feeling that is in these few verses, but we'll try. Let me read some of these. In fact, I'd like to, maybe all of us, if you can, we can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'd like to read a few of these verses, maybe 12, 1 to 12. Give the uh, translators a minute if they need to find it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, our entrance toward you, that it has not been in vain. But having suffered previously, and having been outrageously treated, even as you know in Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much struggle. For our exhortation is not out of deception, nor out of uncleanness, nor in guile. Verse 4, but even as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who proves our hearts. For neither were we found at any time with flattering speech, even as you know, nor with a pretext for covetousness, 
God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, neither from you nor from others, though we could have stood on our authority as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle in your midst, as a nursing mother would cherish her own children. Yearning in this way over you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls, because you became beloved to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and travail while working night and day, so as not to be burdensome to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses as well as God. You watched. You saw this. God saw this and you saw this. I love this. How in a holy and righteous and blameless manner we conducted ourselves toward you who believe. Can you imagine saying that to somebody? You are witnesses as well as God. How in a holy and righteous manner we conducted ourselves What's he doing? I mean, is he bragging? Is this some kind of boast? He's feeding them. This is food. We conducted ourselves toward you who believe. 11, just as you know how we were to each one of you as a father to his own children, exhorting you and consoling you and testifying so that you might walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Amen. Just that much for now. Maybe a little bit more later. Okay, let's read through these points. There's nine points in Roman 2 on the aspects of the pattern. What are the aspects of this pattern? What does it look like? What does a God-man look like? What does the reproduction of Christ look like. Okay, A says, the apostles not only preached the gospel, but they lived it. Their ministering of the gospel was not only by word, but also by a life that displayed the power of God, a life in the Holy Spirit and in the assurance of faith. The apostle Paul stressed repeatedly the apostles' entrance toward the believers. This shows that their manner of life played a great role in infusing the gospel into the new new converts. Saints, you know, whether you're serving with young people or you're serving with children, what impresses them the most are not our teaching. This morning we saw in the outline that our children will forget. They may remember, they may forget what we say, but they'll always remember what they saw. If you talk to second-generation saints in the church life, you talk to some that have grown up in the church, and you ask them, what do you remember? They'll give you names. There was persons. It was persons that are here. That's why I'm here. They're factors. It wasn't that message. You know, I gave a lot of messages to the young people. Sometimes the parents will ask me, please, give them a strong message. You know, tell them not to do this. Tell them not to do that. Give them a strong message. And and I'm thinking, 
my messages don't really matter that much. They don't remember it. But they do remember people. They remember the impact that people had on them. It might be their parents. It might be a grandparent. It might be a serving one. And that's what impressed them. That's what fed them. This is the point in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, is that that pattern is food. When you go to your children's meeting class, you're feeding them by living Christ. You're contacting the Lord. You're being one with him. You're eating him in the morning. You're living him throughout the day. Becomes, makes you, turns you into food. And they witness something, someone that is quite attractive. Someone they like to be. Someone they like to be like. Okay, number one. The apostles were struggling and speaking the gospel to the Thessalonians in the boldness of God. This is the first aspect of the pattern. They came free of charge. They came facing... um, possible death they were risking everything their their life their money their safety their security so that they could go to this little place Thessalonica and preach the gospel and these gospel recipients the people that received this word are so impressed why would they do that why would they risk that why would they give up their comfort why would they leave their families to do that. They, whoa, they did that for us just so we could hear the gospel. They don't even know us. They don't even know who we are. Why would they do that? When it's our turn to serve in the children's meeting, in one place, you know, we talked about this. Brother Lee said, some serve reluctantly. He said, that's useless. But eventually, in another place, when he talked about this, he was talking about some sisters that were serving out of their heart, even spending their own money. And the children would one day realize, you know what? They were spending their own money. They were inconveniencing themselves to bring me that lesson to bring me into that meeting to come pick me up to drop me off and that becomes food that becomes quite a quite a testimony to them but this was Paul and his three companions risking everything safety security convenience food he said you know we We did everything so we would not be burdensome to any of you. In other words, we didn't didn't burden you with our being there. It didn't cost you anything. We paid for everything out of our pocket. We bought our own food. We paid for our own lodging. We even gave you money. You didn't have to support us. We did this free of charge. Wow, I like that. Point two. He said, the the apostles were free from deception, uncleanness, and guile. He said this in verse 3. 
For our exhortation is not out of deception, nor out of uncleanness, nor in guile. You know what this means? Uncleanness, I'm sorry, deception would imply our goal. We came here to deceive you, to trick you into following us. We came with a motive. So that means we were unclean. Inwardly, we came with a motive. We were jealous over you, covetous over you. We were trying to entice you. We were trying. We were not. That's uncleanness. And then we had to use guile, which means we had to use doublespeak. We had to trick you with words. We had to. He said, none of that. No guile. We were pure. We just came. We just came. We just loved you. We didn't know you. We loved you. We came. We had no burden to deceive you, lead you astray. We just wanted to give you the pure gospel. We were free from that. And, of course, the, the backdrop to this is the Judaizers. The Judaizers are on the other side. And they were coming with uncleanness, with guile, with deception, opposing. And here are the apostles. Four of us and these other guys, these opposers. Look. Look at the difference. Point three. The apostles were first tested and approved by God, and then were entrusted by him with the gospel. Hence their speaking, the preaching of the gospel, was not of themselves to please men, but of God to please him. This verse is quite good. Uh, Verse 4, But even as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who proves our hearts. Do you ever do things to please men? You know, we all have a lot of mixture. We like to be appreciated. Sometimes we serve and we serve again and again. And then somebody complains. She talks too long. She comes late. She does this. She does that. And then you think, you know, I've been pouring out. I've been doing this and doing that. Why do I do it? Forget it. Forget it. I don't need this. You understand what I mean? The apostle, he, he, he was not like this. He had been tested by God already. God had already tested his motive. He had already been purified. In the life study, it's quite sweet. Brother Lee said, why does God need to test us? He knows everything already. I mean, it's not like he knows us. So so why does he need to test us? And the answer is this. Well, he knows, but we don't know us. We don't know how we're going to react. We don't know how we're going to respond. So we get tested. Always service in the church tests us. Our motive. We get upset. We get offended. We withdraw. But Paul, he said, we've been tested. We've been approved. And because of that, we've been entrusted with a particular portion, a gospel. That's wonderful. I hope all of us would be those that could pass the test. 
we don't need to please men. We don't need to serve because people think it's great or people notice. Even the saints appreciate it. What if nobody appreciated it? You know, here Paul is with four, three brothers, and they're in this remote place. Nobody knows they're there. Nobody knows what they're doing. They're not doing this for money, for fame, for glory. They're just doing it. This is the model. This is the Lord Jesus reproduced in a person. He goes on, point four. The apostles were never found with flattering speech, nor with a pretext for covetousness. He didn't use flattery. He didn't try to win them by using flattering speech, or nor with a pretext for covetousness. This means... He wanted them to become his followers. And so he was pretending, pretext, pretending to be godly so that they would become his followers. Point five, the apostles did not seek glory from men. Nor did we seek glory from men. Wow. I think every one of us likes uh, some glory from men. To seek glory from men is a real temptation to every Christian worker. Many have been devoured and spoiled by this matter. Lucifer became God's adversary, Satan, because of glory-seeking. Anyone who seeks glory from men is a follower of Satan. Satan how much we will be used by the Lord and how long our usefulness will last depends on whether we seek glory from men. Well, let's, let's fellowship a little bit about this. <laughs> I, I thought this is so serious. How much we will be used by the Lord, how long our usefulness will last depends on whether we seek glory from men. One of the ways to find out is to be rejected, to be set aside, or to be denied, not appreciated. In the last number of years, in the prophesying meeting, I noticed something in myself. I'd like to give a prophecy that really hit the mark, you know. And I was, you know, I'm in a big local church, and I'm one of the leading brothers there, and so I don't want to get up and say something that is below the standard, and often afterwards, oh, I just wondered, did, was that okay? Was that good? What would you think about that? You know, and sometimes I'd go home and I'd ask my wife, and she got, you know, I. Eventually, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading this, I'm reading these messages. I'm thinking, who, who are you trying to please here? Whose glory are you searching for? 
Why do you care? Why do you care? So I began to ask the Lord, why, Lord, why do I care? He says, well, you want glory. You want glory from men. You want to be appreciated. You want to be thought of as something. So even in something so small as that, you know, no amens. You know, you give a, this dynamic prophecy and, and there's no response. You know what you have to do? You just say, Lord, that was for you. That was for you. That wasn't for them. That wasn't for me. That was, that was for you. You know, I hear stories in many places where serving ones stop their service. And in every local church, every local church, I think without exception, the serving ones or the leading ones will come to me and say, how can we get more serving ones to serve with the, uh, with the children? Can we get more to serve? And so, you know, I think about this. What happens is they serve for a while and then they got disappointed, they got offended, they got into a little bit of a, a disagreement and they got, and they stopped. Saints, we need to become this kind of person. Let's go on. Point six. The apostles did not stand on their own authority or dignity as apostles of Christ. This is another point that is just so precious. They didn't come in and say, don't you know that I'm, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ? I'm an elder in the church. I'm a co-worker in the Lord's recovery. Don't you know who I am? They didn't assert authority. This morning we saw how the Lord was lowly. Even, even with his disciples, he took off his garment. He girded himself. He got a, a water and he washed their feet. He came down below them all. He came under them all. He didn't say, don't you know I'm the son of God? You should be washing my feet. You should be kissing my feet. No, he... See, this is the model. They can just... They can serve with anybody. They can get under anyone. They can be with anyone. They can coordinate with anyone. They could be blended with anyone. It doesn't have to be their way. The Lord was the Lord. Yet he was forced by the disciples to go... The wrong way. Those two men on the road to Emmaus going down, down, down. And he's just going down with them so that he could bring them back. I feel like the Lord has to do something in our being, saints, to reproduce himself in us. They didn't stand on their own authority or dignity as apostles of Christ. Brother Lee said they didn't assert authority. You know, assert authority. I'm, I'm the leading one here. I'm... Actually, in the next verse, verse 7, he says, but we were gentle in your midst as a nursing mother would cherish her own children. That's, that's who we were. We were gentle. We were like a nursing mother. 
you know, I think a nursing mother is holding her little infant child with the most tender touch, feeling, and care. That's how the apostles were. How about that? This man was the foremost of sinners, responsible for the imprisonment, persecution, possibly, well, even the death of some of the Lord's dear members. And now he's, he's a gentle mom, just a mama. No dignity, no, no asserting authority, just holding his babies. I don't know. What do you think? Is it possible for the Lord to reproduce himself in us? Well, we're going to fellowship about how, to, how this happens. Point seven, the apostles cherished the believers and yearned over them as a nursing mother would cherish and yearn over her own children. Especially love these verses. We were gentle in your midst as a nursing mother would cherish her own children, yearning in this way over you. Yearning. How do you even describe what kind of feeling is involved with that word, yearning over you. In this way, over you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls, because you became beloved to us. So the apostles were feeding those babies with their own soul, their love, their heart, their care. They were giving them a God-man sandwich. (laughs) The gospel was in there and their soul, their own soul, their own transformed humanity was in there and that was food. Okay. The apostles not only imparted the gospel of God to the Thessalonians, but they also imparted their own souls. And finally, number nine, these are the nine points of the, of the pattern. The apostles considered themselves as fathers in exhorting the believers to walk in a manner worthy of God, to have a walk that will enable them to enter into the kingdom of God and usher them into the glory of God. In cherishing the believers, these apostles were mothers. In exhorting the believers, they were their daddies, their papas. You know, everyone needs both, a mama and a papa. Mothers have a way. Dads have a way. And how blessed were these Thessalonian believers to have four blended godmen co-workers who were both mamas to them and daddies look at this verse 11 just as you know see he's rem- he's reminding them just remember remember just as you know how we were among you 
not what we said, not even what we did, how we, how we were among you as a father to his own children. But he uses this word, how we were to each one of you. <laughs> I was this way with you. I was this way with you. We were like that with you. We were like that with you. With each one, one by one. I think Paul certainly knew their names, every one of them. He cared for each one in a personal way. And then it says, exhorting you, consoling you, and testifying. Fathers exhort, but sometimes dads need to console. Consoling comes after a failure, a defeat, a mistake. You know, your little little girl falls down and scrapes her knee. And the dad picks her up. It's going to be okay. Let me kiss it. Let me... This is what dads do. This was the kind of care Paul was rendering to those believers. You think, why would Paul devote an entire chapter to talk about these things? Maybe he should be telling them, don't do this, don't do that, don't go there, don't listen to that kind of music, don't wear those kind of clothes, don't drink alcohol, don't smoke, don't don't do this. But actually, he just says, remember how we were. And the striking thing is this, If you go back to chapter 1, now I'd like to show you how this works. In chapter 1, we read verse 5 about what kind of men we were among you. You go to verse 6, and it says this, and you became imitators of us. This is the goal, saints, of all of our work, whether as parents or as serving ones, Our goal is for them to imitate us. Be just like me. Follow me. Live like me. Be like me. If you follow me, you be like me, you will be okay. You'll be fine. Here Paul said they became imitators of us and of the Lord. Because we were imitating the Lord, we were taking this wonderful person as our pattern Now, we're imitating him, you're imitating us, and because you're imitating us, you're therefore imitating the Lord through us. But they had people in front of them, serving ones, that they could see this God-man living with. Verse 7, so that you became a pattern to all those who believe in Macedonia and Achaia, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded out, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith toward God has gone out so that we have no need of saying anything. They became his message, his gospel message. While he was a gospel message, he embodied the gospel. His fruit also embodied the gospel and became the same kind of reproduction. This is how it works, saints. 
Well, let's, let's go on. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's come to Roman 3. Now, I think, okay, now we come to a very, very precious point. Roman 3 says, to do the work of fostering, this is the work of fostering, to foster people, to actually do it, to shepherd people, to cherish and nourish them, is to give them a proper pattern. Paul fed his spiritual children with his own living of Christ. You should underline that. Paul fed his spiritual children with his own living of Christ. Do you know what this means? This means that our living, our life in secret, our morning revival, our personal prayers our transactions with the Lord, our dealings with him, our going to the cross, our struggles, our wrestling with him, our getting through with him. All of that is in the pattern. We don't have to explain this to people. We don't have to tell them. I spent 10 10 hours with the Lord this morning that I was wrestling with him all night like Jacob. We don't need to say anything. It's in the pattern. It's, it's, in the, it's in the person. You embody the message. And that pattern is food. That feeds people. Parents, okay. Most of this message is directed to serving ones. But here we have one point on the outline that starts with parents. Okay? Parents are patterns models for their children. Whatever the parents are, the children will be also. Imitating is related to growing. Children grow by imitating their parents. To give the new believers and young ones a lot of teaching is not the proper way to take care of them. The proper way to foster them is to show them a pattern. By showing them a pattern, you water them, supply them, nourish them, and cherish them. Actually, Brother Lee labored on this point quite a lot. He said, the young ones in the Lord don't need a lot of teaching. Sometimes we think that the way to perfect somebody is to give them a lot of teaching. But actually, it's better give him a testimony. Give him a testimony. Isn't this what Paul said? As a father, we were exhorting you, consoling you, and testifying. A testimony is a real experience of a real thing that you pass through. This will feed them. You know, I've shared this in previous places and conferences, and I don't recall always where I minister things. So sometimes I, or oftentimes I repeat myself. But my dad was a real pattern to me. He had a huge effect on me. His dad, he had flaws, he had problems. I, I mean, I, I'm aware of that. There's a few things about him that really got into me. 
one thing that really got into me is that he would not do anything if it wasn't God's will. <laughs> you know, he didn't know the church life. He didn't know the, the will of God, you know, like, like we do today. But he knew one thing, that he was going to follow the Lord in an absolute way to do his will. I was dating my girlfriend in high school. This is many years ago. And I was thinking about marrying her. I wanted to marry her. This is my wife. I mean, I married her eventually. <laughs> Just so you know. But here I am. I'm, I'm a young man. I'm 18 years old. You know, a little too young to be getting married for sure. But I'm 18, high school senior. And I became extremely convicted that I was considering to marry her. And I hadn't yet prayed concerning whether this was of the will of God or not. I remember this distinctly. To the extent that I spent a month to fast and pray, not every day, but to pray every day and fast on one day to know whether this was of the Lord or not. And you know what? It was after a month of this kind of fasting that the Lord brought us both to the church life. Not only did I know the will of God concerning her, I got to know the will of God concerning God. But it was the pattern. That little thing in my dad. You know, let me say something about my dad. We lived on this little farm outside of a little town called Dinuba, California. We had five acres, just a small little thing. And we had a dog. It was a very nice Labrador retriever dog. You know, all the farm, farmers, you always have to have a dog. They're the, you know, the burglar alarm. And they're your protection. Well, our dog, unfortunately, died. <laughs> and so we were looking for a new dog. This time we were looking for a German shepherd dog. German. Hmm. <laughs> and so we found this man that was selling a litter, you know, his little German shepherd pups. And we came to this house to look at the different ones. And, all, you know, there were six kids in our family. So we all got in the car. We all drove out to this place. And we're all holding these little puppies, you know, and they're all puppies are all so cute. And which one should we get? And so we're trying to decide. And the kids are fighting over which one, which one. And eventually, he gets his six kids over by the car. And he said, let's pray. Even over buying a dog, he wanted to know whether this was of the Lord's will or not. This is the kind of thing that got into me as a young man. The model, the pattern has a big effect. 
when Brother Lee spoke about this, he said, you know, if we don't have the experiences, it's okay. Use somebody from the Bible. Use, give a story from church history. Use a pattern. Use a model. Give a true story, a real experience of another saint, someone you know, something you heard. This feeds them. You know, if you really want to give a, a good lesson in children's meeting, tell them a real story. A real story of someone, something that happened to make that point. Because that feeds them. That gets into them. That has an effect. So don't give them a lot of teaching. You know, this is always the big concern we had with the children's work as we have been considering a new direction is that we would give children's lessons like a school teacher, like a lecture, where we're just standing up there exhorting them. Do you know what it means to have compassion? Compassion. This is the definition. You have to do this. You have to be like this. You have to, and you just tell them. You just tell them. But suppose you came into your classroom and you said, you know, I want to tell you a story about a man who had this incurable disease. It was called, it's called leprosy. And leprosy, especially in the old days, was terminal. And it disfigured you and it caused you to be ugly and painful, full of sores. People would run away from you. As soon as you were diagnosed, you had to go live somewhere else because you were contagious and you would contaminate your family and and everyone would get the disease. And you just tell them about there was a man who was not afraid. Think about this. This man had leprosy. Probably he had been away from his family for months, maybe years, in utter seclusion. No one loved him. No one touched him. No one hugged him. No one cared. They just had to get away from him. But then there was a man who was not afraid of him. He came up to him and he put his hand on him. And he said, you're healed. And he healed him. You give a lesson like compassion like that. And it'll get through. You bring them into their feeling. The loneliness. The utter loneliness. And someone feeling that. Reacting to it. And resolving it. This is how we give our lessons. Paul fed the new believers. With his own living of Christ. And saying it's okay. We can be a little humble, we can say, well, I hope someday I'll be a God-man. I hope someday, by the Lord's mercy, I could be transformed and become a God-man. I don't think that's the problem. Just wait, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you're still going to be hoping someday you'll be a God-man. In the outlines we saw, that the beginning of God-man living is realizing that we're a God-man. That realization, seeing, 
who I am. I'm the reproduction. I'm, I'm the living again of the Lord Jesus. I'm his members. I'm one with him. He's one with me. I, I'm a God man. I, I can't talk to my wife like that. I can't talk to the salesperson like that. You know, <laughs> we shipped, uh, you know, my wife and I, we moved to Germany in June. We're so happy to be in Germany, to be in Europe. I'm home, saints. <laughs> Part of our moving process is that we hired a shipping company to move mostly my books. I mean, you know, I got a lot of books, and I didn't want to leave them. I do have an iPad, and I can get all the books, but it's not like having the book, you know. All my books are marked up. I, I know right where stuff is, and uh, I, I want my books. Well, we shipped them on April 20th. They said it takes about six weeks. We thought, perfect. Around the 1st of June, we're moving to Germany. Our books, my books and our things will arrive maybe the next week. Well, oh, Lord Jesus, it still didn't come. It, it didn't come. It didn't come. And they keep sending us, we need more money. We need more money. We got, you got your books or your, your boxes got stuck in Customs inspection. They they're looking for drugs or guns or something, and so okay, I'll give more money, please. Just so they said, okay, they pass customs uh, anytime after July fifth. It's we're past July fifth, right? So I'm about to write uh, an email, and I was gonna. It was gonna be a you know a serious email. <laughs> In fact, I put one sentence in there. And if I told you what the sentence is, you would think that it was not that bad. It's really not that bad. It was, well, maybe I should tell you what it was. But then, does a God man write that? Is that what a God man writes? So I go, oh. Delete. <laughs> Just this much. How's that? Okay, amen. Good. Okay, send. Thanks. Whether it's we're talking to our wife, some of us, we became so accustomed. You know, Brother Nee said this. He said, familiarity breeds contempt. The more you know your wife or your husband, the more... Is it true? Oh, I think it is true. So you always do that. You always say that. You know how we talk to... We'd never talk to our boss like that. We'd never talk to our coworker like that. But somehow, we talk to our children like that. We talk to our wife or our husband like that. How good if this God-man, we realize that I've been born of God. I have his life and nature. I'm not hoping for it. Do we need to preach the assurance of salvation tonight? No. We know who we are. We're born of God. We have his life, his nature. He's our father. There's nothing more. We've been born of God. Of course, we have to grow. We have to mature. We have to advance. And the degree to which we grow and advance and are transformed, for sure, that will be the degree to which 
there could be some expression of this God-man who lives in me. You know, one of those four co-workers that went into Thessalonica, you know who it was? It was Timothy. Probably a kid. Just a young, young man. Paul picked him up. Days, maybe weeks, maybe a month beforehand, as he was passing through Iconium. You read this in Acts chapter 17 or 18. And then right away, there, there they are. They're in Philippi, and it's terrible. They're getting beaten and put in prison. Then they go to Thessalonica. One of these godmen was a young man. You know, those young people can be godmen in their schools. We're not hoping for this. We're challenging them with this. You see it, you get it. When you see it, you get it. We have to pray. The Lord would open our eyes to the point that it becomes very clear in our being. No, you can't do that. That's a lie. You can't say that. There's boundaries. Boundaries in our being. You can't do that. You're a God man. (laughs) For a long time, I spoke at the sixth grade mountain trip for the young people. During those conferences, we tried to, and we really did, we led our children to know the Lord in a definite way, to get saved with a certain amount of impact. One of the things we did during that conference was to convict their conscience, to talk to them about stealing, lying, some of the, you know, their young 12-year-olds, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, how they had sinned against God. And one of the examples that we used was when you see money laying on the ground. You know, the rule of, you know, humanity is finders keepers, you know. It's, hey, praise the Lord, you know. (laughs) So we asked them, is that yours? Is that yours? You know, to touch their conscience. Well, you know. There's a lot of things like this. You know, one day, one of the kids came up to me. He, he was now a few years later. And he goes, you know what? Last week, I saw a dollar on the ground, and I didn't take it. <laughs> he was so proud of himself. But we need a lot of these. God, we need, this is why we have to eat the model. We eat the model, Jesus, and this model gets into us. And it begins to establish kind of boundaries in our being, in our consciousness. One day you're going to talk to your kids with anger. And you'll realize, I'm in the flesh. I'm in the flesh. Does a God-man speak to his children in the flesh? That question. Brother Lee said he was adjusted again and again. By this, just this question, does a God-man do that? Does a God-man talk like that? Does a God-man drive like that? <laughs> he didn't do that. He didn't say that. That's personal experience. 
I told this example many times, and I'm thankful to the Lord today. I don't own a car. I think I might get one, but right now I don't own one. I'm using the Metro. It's kind of a new experience for me, typical American, to not have a car, but to be on a bus or a tram or a subway or something to get around and walking. But when I used to live in Irvine and I was going to the training center in Anaheim, I always wanted to be on time because I was one of the trainers in the training and for a trainer to be late to his class would not look good. So I would need to rush. And the traffic in Southern California was unpredictable. And so sometimes I was driving not like a God-man. <laughs> I was rushing. I was, and I had this realization, you know, this word about compassion, you know, sensing other people's feelings. I noticed I was making everybody mad. Everyone around me was getting angry the way I was. And then the question, does a God-man drive like this? I said, why don't you bless everybody, you know, just bless them. <laughs> don't offend them. Even in our driving, we could be a God-man. This model gets into our kids. It feeds them. They see something. They're touched by something. They, they think, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. All right, I better keep going. So this is all on point B. Don't just give them a lot of teaching. You can see the impact of a model, of an example. Point C, the source, the origin of the apostles' preaching was God and not themselves. Whenever we preach or teach, we must impress others with the fact that what we are saying is not the word of man, but is truly the word of God. Point D, the church in Thessalonica imitated the churches in Judea. So this was their culture from day one is they learned to imitate. So then when they heard stories about the churches in Judea, they just imitated. It's so good. What a, that is the most awesome way. You just imitate. You start by imitating. You grow up by imitating. And you church life by imitating. Everything was imitating. One, reports concerning the churches in Judea reached the believers in Thessalonica. They must have heard about the churches and the saints. And these reports fostered the growth of the Thessalonian believers. Nothing can foster a church or a saint as much as a true story about other saints or churches. That is a very important point. The inoculating word was also part of Paul's fostering of the saints. Even inoculation is included in fostering. Paul inoculated the believers against the eventual coming of the Judaizers. Paul likened their departure from them to a bereavement, a loss they suffered from being separated from them, and that caused them to miss them. This word implies that the apostles considered the new converts precious and dear to them. In chapter 2, verse 17, I think it is, Paul used this word bereaved. When we were bereaved of you, you know, this word bereavement is a word that you use to describe incredible loss. It would be something you would describe as a parent if you lost one of your children. 
you suffer a bereavement. Paul used that word to describe his being separated from those Thessalonians. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, And when, when we could bear it no longer. In verse 5, chapter 3, he said, When I could bear it no longer. There was a real feeling there. This is the model. My. No wonder they could receive the gospel in such a prevailing way. Roman 4. Those who work with the Lord in fostering the believers to walk worthily of God will receive a reward. This reward will be the believers we have fostered becoming our crown, glory, and joy. Because the apostles rendered such care to the new believers, the apostles will eventually receive a reward from the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2.20 indicates that since the apostles were the believer's nursing mother and exhorting father, the believers as their children were their glory and joy. Apart from them, the apostles had no hope, glory, or crown of boasting. Paul was telling them, what is our hope? What is our glory? What is our joy? What is our crown of boasting? In that day, is it, isn't it not you? If we get to the kingdom and you're not there, we have no crown. We have no boast. We have no glory. We have nothing. But suppose the ones we labored on, suppose the ones we fostered, the ones that we raised up, the ones that we nourished and cherished were there. You don't need a crown. You don't need a glory. Their being there as your fruit becomes your crown of boasting in that day. This is what Paul was telling them. He's saying, you've got to make it, saints. You've got to get through. You've got to be there. If you don't be there, Brother Lee described, he said, it's like a father speaking to his children, telling them, All I have is you. If I don't have you, I don't have anything. I only live for you. What a tender word. What a tender thought. The believers that they had fostered becomes their reward. This is really true, saints. It's the ones we raised up, the ones we cared, the ones we took care of. They become our boast. Even Peter speaks of this. Point C, when the chief shepherd is manifested, you will also receive the unfading crown of glory. Okay, I promised at the beginning that I would tell you how this can be reproduced in us. And I don't have anything really serious or profound. And I've mentioned it already in the meeting. Number one, we have to realize who we are. Never forget. This was Brother Lee's exhortation to us again and again. Never forget. You're a God man. Never forget. Always remember. He used these kind of terms. Always remember. Never forget. This is the first thing. We have to see who we are. As a mom, as a dad, God-man mom, God-man dad, 
Don't say, well, I'm not going to play, play along. You know, I'm not going to do this. This is too hard. Uh, it's too late. You believed. You got baptized too late. You're a God man. Never forget. Always remember. The second thing is that we need to eat our dear Lord Jesus. This morning, tried to present to you a pattern of the living of the Lord Jesus as the first God-man. What a model. That model is food. We have to eat him. We have to eat him. We have to be serious about this. Our kids' life depends on our eating. Their future hinges on our enjoying Christ. We have to find some time in the morning. We have to. To eat our dear Lord. Eat this model. Eat this pattern. You know, I strongly encourage the brothers and sisters to have a good morning revival. Using the holy word for morning revival, for sure. But I would say even beyond that, eat him. Eat him. Eat the Lord. Eat this dear Lord. Many ways. It was late last year. Boy, a lot of things have been happening for me in the last six months. But late last year, I began to be so impressed with this matter of seeing that I'm a God man. Really was very much before the Lord about this, to see this in a way that I don't have to keep reminding, you know, I have to keep remembering it. I I would realize, I would see it. And uh, so I, I decided to read through the New Testament a number of times. And I was looking for something. I was looking for every verse, every phrase, or every word that gave me a little window into what it looks like when divinity lives in humanity. Do you follow me? When God can come into man and live in this man, what does it look like? Oh, saints, I found some really good portions in here. And it sounds like exhortations. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted. You know this verse, we know this in Ephesians 4, even as God, you know, forgiving, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's not an exhortation, that's a meal. Eat that. And just I'm going to try and do this in a very quick way because I don't have time you know how the Old Testament law was given as a testimony as a photo we covered this last year the law was a photo of God impressing his people with what kind of God he was and God gave the law to the children of Israel not as demands for them to try to keep but as a loving letter for them to enjoy. Well, now, let's fast forward. The New Testament is a photo. Guess what? 
It's a photo of a God-man and what a God-man looks like, how a God-man lives. It's not a book of exhortations, of demands, of requirements upon fallen humanity. It is meal after meal, dish after dish, word after word. We have to eat this. Start at the, at the beginning and just eat it. And then all of those divine, rich divine attributes will fill your human virtues. And you'll find yourself loving people that you couldn't love, caring about situations you couldn't care about. You'll find out that something is happening. Yes, you'll still have failures. And yes, you'll still make mistakes. You'll blow it. You'll lose your temper. You'll do this. You'll do that. Sure. But never forget who you are. You're a God man. So what do you do? You confess. You repent. You turn around. You call on the Lord. And you eat the, eat the model again. That's how a God man lives. Paul became the reproduction of Christ. And if the foremost of sinners can can become such, I don't think any of us have an excuse. Huh? May the Lord work this out. Okay, so I'll stop here. How about we just pray for a minute? The brothers are going to set up the mics, I think, and I hope we could have some sharing. Again, not much time, but let's try. Okay? So let's pray with our neighbor, all right?